Hi, I'm Anne Strandchamps, host of To the Best of Our Knowledge. By now you've heard some of Going for Broke, the podcast series we co-produced with our friends and partners at the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. It's the kind of idea-driven audio work that To the Best of Our Knowledge does every week. If you want to get a sense of the pretty extensive range of subjects we cover, check out our regular podcast feed. Meanwhile, for this season of Going for Broke, we knew we wanted to focus on the concept of care as a social and economic good. We wanted to ground the series in personal stories paired with economic philosophy and a few public policy ideas. Most important, we wanted the series to have a heart, a tone of empathy and a tangible sense of human connection, which is why I was so excited to have Ray Suarez host it. In season one, Ray talked a bit about his own experience of unemployment and financial crisis. So when he and I were sitting down to cut promos for this season, I asked him if he'd talk a bit about how he sees his role as a journalist when it comes to reporting on economic inequality. Actually, it's right up my alley with a lot of the reporting that I've done over the years. I was a street reporter in Chicago for seven years during a time of real distress in a lot of communities Mm. and also covered those issues, wealth and poverty, for the PBS NewsHour for many years as well. And I wrote a book on white flight and gentrification. You know, this is right under our noses all the time, but you'd never know it from looking at our media. I know, and why is that, do you think? Because it's a, for a lot of people, it's a downer, or they think they know the story already, so they're not interested, Hmm. or advertisers don't want their ads running next to it. I, I don't know. It could be a lot of things, could be all of those things. And so what's most important to you in reporting on people who are on the margins or invisible for some reason or another? I think right at the heart of what our assignment is as reporters in this country is to offer readers, listeners, and viewers an accurate, true-life vision of the country they live in so they can make decisions about being a citizen. If they don't understand the place they live in, it makes the work of being a citizen that much harder. So I think reporters are absolutely central to that task and absolutely central to creating not just an understanding, but an accurate understanding of what the state of play is in this country at any given time. Well, and accurate is crucial because I think there's so many misconceptions about financial precarity. I think one of the things that I'm hoping this series will do is point out how much financial precarity is everywhere, that hardship does not just look like the homeless guy with a sign asking for money at the intersection, although it looks like that too, but it also looks like the adjunct professor living in her car, your neighbor who owns her own home but may not have enough to eat. Or the adjunct who's flailing ferociously, teaching at four different schools and driving a beat-up car 70 miles a day between them all, trying to piece it all together and keep her chin, his chin, above water. That's the part where the precarity comes in. I know a lot of adjuncts who teach as sort of a side hustle, a fun thing to do and make a little extra dough to pay for some vacation. And that's a far cry from the world of people who are working almost like in academic serfdom. 
And the problem with that kind of story is that it doesn't elicit a lot of sympathy from too many Americans because they don't think of that as work and they don't think of that as a job. And it's become quite stylish to be contemptuous of academics and contemptuous of people who do mental work, who do intellectual work. So the adjunct is in some ways the poster child of 21st century precarity because they've played by all the rules. They Mm -hmm. went and got the degrees, got the qualifications they needed to do this work, and then entered the labor force in their chosen field at a time when it was being smashed to bits by the people who control the game, that is, the people who run the schools where they work. That's not something they could have anticipated. It's not something they could have changed or fixed, but there they are having to deal with it and having, you know, in their late 20s, early 30s, all the way into their early 40s, having to adjust to a constantly shifting set of demands. I think that is really at the heart of the stories that we've been telling all along in the Going for Broke project. People forced to rock back on their heels, reconsider everything, and make the best of it. And do you find that for people in the, what we used to call higher status professions, you know, like adjunct professor, is it hard for them even to say to themselves, I'm poor? In a country where people are widely distributed across income levels and almost nobody says they're poor, yeah, it's tough to say, I'm poor. In a country where the richest people identify as middle class, it's really hard to say, I'm rich. We are not very good as a people about being honest with ourselves about who makes what and for doing what and what kind of life it buys them in return. The next time I read an article where somebody says, yeah, well, I I make $250,000, but I live in New York. I'm going to throw the paper, myself, (laughs) and that person out the window. As in, that's just middle class. That's just just middle class where I live. You don't understand. And I said, you know, what you don't understand is the life lived by people who make $50,000 and say they're middle class, but they really are. It's funny how much judgment there is when in the end, it's just how much money you make. It seems like the old American, oh, the deep Puritan values, you know, the idea that if you're poor, it's something you did wrong. Right. It's your fault. And also we are, to a degree, victims of our own expectations. You can take two people in the same workplace working shoulder to shoulder and making very similar wages And one might consider themselves a failure because of how they grew up and where they grew up and what they thought they would be doing, while another thinks they got the golden ticket. That's the theater that lives between our ears all the time. Yeah. Who we think we are, what we ought to be doing, what success means. Sometimes it's hard to capture that in a story because especially in economic reporting, we deal a lot with income quartiles and income quintiles and you know years of tenure in the workplace and all that. But then there's a whole social drama that goes on with the expectations game and whether people are disappointed in how things have worked out and disappointed in themselves and where they thought they would be at any given age and so on. 
Well, I think that's been so hard for the millennial generation in particular, because if I look at my parents, that was a generation of people who did pretty well. And my kids and their friends are gig economy workers. You know, it's it's funny you should bring that up, because I've been spending a lot of time with my father just in the recent past weeks, because he hasn't been well. And he's a guy who can't believe how lucky he is. He probably finished the 10th grade and he owned a house. He owned a business. He thinks America's just been a phenomenal place for him where the dreams he had as a little boy could only have happened here. So his view of what the country means and how it succeeds and for who is shaped by that experience. Mm-hmm. While his own grandchildren, they are 19 to 33 years old, and they're facing the constant renegotiation of where's the floor and where's the ceiling and, and what does it mean to get ahead and what do I have to do to be a participant in this economy? I think to the the New York of my youth when I was growing up in the 60s and people still had rent parties. The rent parties where you ask all your friends and everybody puts money in the basket to help you pay your well, rent? Well, you, you, you throw a party, you put on food, you put on music, people come, and then, yeah, it's like a, an undefined contribution, but everybody who comes and dances and has snacks or brings food, throws a couple of bucks in the pot, and you can make rent. Recently, there was an article in the Times um, detailing how the median rent on the island of Manhattan is now $5,000 a month. Oh, and wow. you, you'd have to hire Carnegie Hall to have a rent party <laughs> <laughs> to, to make your rent there. Yeah. So I'm, I really worry about people f- falling through the cracks, but just the demands of keeping up being so disproportionately high. You know, yes, many of the commonplaces of daily life, the economic commonplaces of daily life, a car note, the rent, are in their fundamentals much the same. But now the average car purchased in America is $33,500. People are getting six and seven year notes so that they always have a car loan. And it's not the 30 or $40 that it was back when you bought a Malibu in 1964. It's now as big as a rent check in a lot of places in the country, seven or $800 a month. And these same people that we're expecting to keep pace are also paying a trillion dollars worth of school debt at the same time. Right. So there's a lot on our plates as a people, it happened slowly, like turning up the heat uh, under a boiled egg. It's not going to be something that we can build down or back out of that quickly either, because the structures that grow up around a new style of life are often pretty rigid. Well, what I'm hoping for this series is that as we listen to the interviews that you and the TT Book team have assembled, we think some about what caring means and what it would really mean to live in a caring economy. 
what would that mean for healthcare and for education, for shelter, for so many parts of our life? I've always told young reporters and I've always told audiences that I talk to about the news business that consuming the news is an exercise of me, not me. And what do I mean by that? As it's streaming by, as you're reading an article, as you're cooking something in the kitchen and the radio's on the the shelf and you're listening to a story as you chop onions, you're doing a constant exercise of, well, that's like me. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's not anything like me at all. And depending on your state of mind, you either lean in closer or you recoil from it. You either create a moment of sympathy or empathy or human connection, or you say, oh my goodness, what a terrible life, not me. And it changes the level of investment, the level of, what would I call it, implication. Does this implicate me in some way? Am I a party to this structure that created this predicament for this fellow human being? Or does this have absolutely nothing to do with me? Or will I now work hard to convince myself that this has absolutely nothing to do with me, which is a sort of different exercise? But me, not me, I think is a, is a really important part of what we do when we listen to stories on the news. So I'm hoping that when people listen to this series, Going for Broke, that they may have very different life experiences, so that's not me, but it could be me. And what would I do if it was me? Would I be able to withstand the setbacks, the pressure, the disappointment that some of our storytellers have had to face in their lives? Would I crumble under this? Would I get a stiffer spine and stand up straighter? What would happen to me? And if it does that, we've done a lot of our job. Quick reminder, you can find to the best of our knowledge online at ttbook.org or look for us wherever you get your podcasts.